morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing a variety of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. If you have questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page, and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking to Kerry Ann Mendes about growing in small spaces or the right size uh, flower garden. Uh, Good morning, Kerry. Good morning, Kate. How are you? I'm doing very well. And you're up in Zone 5, so your book refers to everything in what I would call the the good growing zones, 5 through 7-ish, right? Oh, yep, absolutely. I actually... A lot of the material covers also even to zone three because earlier in life, oh my gosh, about 20 years ago, I lived in Lake Placid, New York, which is right up there on the Canadian border and, and an absolutely a zone three range for gardening. So <laughs> I, I know, I know. I, I finally, it just was too cold after a while and too long of a winter, so I moved to the tropics to zone five. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we we ventured as far south south as um, zone almost eight uh, down in Atlanta. But uh, there there are some things that don't grow quite that far south because they don't get winter. So, uh, yeah. So I I think the five through seven are are pretty much perfect. Um, But but anyway, the basis of a smaller garden and why you and other baby boomers need to address and simplify the garden chores. I mean, what prompted you to uh, to change what you were doing in the garden? Because you've been a low-maintenance gardener pretty much all your life, right? I have. I have. And that's been, you know, my first two books were all about, you know, tough love, low-maintenance, how to select plants, right plant, right spot, and obviously organic, sustainable practices. But, you know, what happened to me were two things. One of them, I think, happens to most of us. The second, uh, hopefully, doesn't. But the first thing was I had started to feel over recent years that the gardens were demanding more of me than I could, I could keep up with. You know, I nurtured and loved these and been kept adding over the years. And I started to feel as if I was a slave to the gardens. Uh, you know, I felt guilty if I wasn't out there doing work. And that started to just kind of nag at me, thinking, you know what, I, I need to really tweak these gardens to bring them in line with my ability to enjoy them again and care for them. But for me, the, the second part, which was the big scale tipper, that was the catalyst for me to right-size my gardens, was when my husband had, an, unfortunately, a, a bad accident and broke his neck. And I'm by the Lord's grace, he wasn't paralyzed. But the result was he had to retire early. He could not help me out in the landscape, the lawns, everything. And so suddenly I had half of my time, who would, half the gardens who had been, at least the mowing had been done by my husband, and now I was caring for him as well as my gardens, and I needed to get a full-time job with benefits and a salary to pay for our costs with our family. So my life went into a total spin, which forced me to take a real clear picture of my gardens, where they were at that point, and how I could truly bring them down by 50% of maintenance time without compromising the beauty, because I want a glorious landscape. I want great property value. I want all that. So... The After the accident, it took me about two years to go through these loads of gardens I had and to right-size them into something that was 
enjoyable again. Um, I had the ability to do, and I had, I think, even more color than I had before. Um, yeah. So that's the story. And actually, I don't mean to, but we ended up selling that gorgeous property in upstate New York where I had used for my business and been in a lot of magazines, these gardens. We sold it and moved to Kennebunk, Maine, to a little condominium, single-floor living, so my husband wouldn't have to deal with the stairs, and the maintenance, the mowing and all provided by the association because he simply could not do what he used to do. So I garden here at the condo. We have a lot of space around my end unit and along the woods, but now when I'm gardening, I'm picking plants that work harder for me than I do for them and are much more sustainable as far as low water needs and and low fertilizer and all of that. And, and I think, you know, a garden is supposed to be somewhere where you can relax and it shouldn't be always nagging at you to go <laughs> weed this or weed that. Um, right. I mean, I always find myself, because we've only been in this property two years and it, it needed a lot of attention. It hadn't been cared for for about five or six years. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there was always, my mind is always saying, well, I need to get that done. And I think we need to step back from that sometimes and just sit and enjoy the garden with with what it is exactly and you know but to do that in many ways i mean I, I i when i'm talking with people i said you know if you're starting to you know feel stressed you're wringing your hands together you're not feeling the same joy of gardening because the gardens are just demanding too much of you at this point the only way that's going to change is if you change something out there either reduce the space that you're gardening in or switch some of the plant material in the existing space so it's much less demanding and more colorful. But by nature, we, we gardeners are nurturers. We love to care for things. And, and the idea of plucking a plant out of our garden goes against our soul. So I have to um, I keep reminding myself and others in the book that our plants, are not our children or pets that we can uh, get rid of or give to friends plants that are not meeting our needs at this point and instead work with plants that are just much harder working plants and (laughs) easier. But, you know, we just got to, in order to declutter our closet, our garden, our attic, we need to step away a little bit from the emotions and say, you know what, this plant has been driving me nuts for the last few years. It's time to stop the madness and do something about it. And so that's what I I did when I was right-sizing. Yeah, and actually I was doing that just this past weekend. I I got these barberies, which I hate with a passion. And they, they were at the top of, you know, when there's a part of a garden I don't like, I ignore it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this was just outside the, the garage. So, you know, in the winter, I'm go, going down there all the time. And, and I, I just felt that these barbers, it was time for them to go. So my husband had gone off because he likes to keep things forever. I got the pickaxe <laughs> out and I got rid of five barberies and it felt so liberating. Isn't it? You, know, you just want to skip around and say, wow, <laughs> you know, freedom rings and and um, more of us have to get to that and I hope it's not because of a sudden change in health like it helped happened in my family but if we've been if it's starting to be on our mind and we're both thinking about it and we're feeling it then it's time to start making some changes and i had a tree peony that needed a home (laughs) but but anyway um, on an overall landscape um if it's going to be low maintenance um i mean most people think of a, a lawn as being maybe 
high maintenance. But is a lawn really more maintenance than a flower bed, which needs constantly deadheading and weeding? You know, that's a good point. I mean, I it depends how you treat your lawn. I mean, for for me, I'm into. I use all organics. I don't use any type of chemicals, and I am embracing the fact that I have some clover and different uh, mix of plants in my lawn. It's not a monoculture, all bluegrass. So I think as more and more people uh, think about, you know, I go back in time to the gar- lawns when we used to have clover and go out and look for far- four-leaf clovers and all that. I remember those days, and now. A lot of places you drive by, we've got these, you know, these lawns that are so high on chemicals and the water needs that, yeah, those are high-maintenance lawns. But if we step back and use, you know, uh, more fescues, different types of uh, grass that don't need the same amount of water, that are easier to maintain, I agree, a lawn can be a lot less work than a garden. I I know when when we had a lot of property in Ohio, I mean, it would take kind of three hours to mow it on a tractor. We came here and we've got maybe 25 minutes with a hand Mm. mower. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And I'm still getting rid of some some of it. Like, we've got a very big maple. I mean, grass doesn't grow under there. Why are we trying to mow it and make it grow? Let's just mulch it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, you just said it, though. That's the perfect... People feel because it's an open space, it needs to be garden. Like, if you if there's open space, we will plant it. And I'm like, wait a minute. As you just said, maybe that's a place where we just put a colorful, a nice mulch that it looks attractive and is no work, that will stay there for several years, maybe refresh it every once in a while. Or one of the things I address in, in the book is um, – is to use some of these weed-smothering ground covers that are low water, uh, have attractive flowers that will spread, choke out weeds, and we can use those for our mulch instead, especially in hell strip areas. We can do something like that. And, and what would be an example of one of those, maybe? Well, you know, so many people, especially towards the shade, use, you know, Pakistan or Avinka. And... I like to use some alternatives or just to mix it up. I love to use um, the, the plant called Epimedium. The common name is Barrenwort. Okay. Have you used that one in your garden? Uh, well, I haven't, but that sounds it's, like a decent one. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool perennial that has elongated heart-shaped leaves that are very colorful, and it has the sweetest uh, flowers, that uh, little delicate flowers on wiry stems in the spring, a lot of different flower colors, and it thrives in dry shade. So under those maple trees, under the pines, so you can have this floral carpet of weed-smothering leaves there with beautiful spring flowers. That's one I use a lot. You know, another one for shade and then I use is, and you'll find it usually under the, um, like the Jeepers Creepers or the steppable lines of ground covers in four-inch ponds. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's one called Leptinilla. I know it sounds kind of like a mouthful, but it's L-E-P-T-I-N-E-L-L-A. And it looks like, it's only an inch tall, but it looks like little baby Japanese painted fern. Are you familiar with Japanese yes. painted fern? yeah. Okay, so picture those little silvery burgundy um, green fronds, but only an inch tall, very thick carpet, and that will sweep across areas, and it's stunning. It's beautiful.
Oh, wow. Those sound like some great ground cover ideas um, th- yeah. that are obviously low maintenance. And, yeah. you know, yeah. say sometimes you, we, I find that we're fighting against nature to get what we want. Yeah. And, and that's what causes a lot of the, the angst in a garden. You know, if, if a, a garden is on a slope, you know, why, why bother trying to stop, stop the, the stuff coming down? You know, it's, right. yeah. It's, uh, but, but it's, I mean, there's a fine line between, being a ground cover and being a thug in the garden. Right. I mean, sometimes you let them run and they run just a little bit too far, um, right. which can be a problem. But, you know, let's talk about that in the next segment um, okay. because I think we need to go for a, a quick commercial break here. Uh, but we will be back with Kerry Ann Mendes and the Right Size Garden and How to Achieve It. And we'll start with those ground covers, going between a good ground cover and an aggressive thug in the garden. We will be right back. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find the archives on americaswebradio.com web pages. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers. This morning, we are talking to Kerry Ann Mendes about the right sized garden. And we talked about um, some of the plants and some of the things that we do in gardens, Kerry. And we ended a little bit with um, ground covers. Um, and you mentioned a couple of nice ones for shade areas, uh, but we were just going to approach that problem of when does a ground cover become a thug in the garden? Um, and and once, they, once they've covered the area, how do you stop them from going somewhere else? <laughs> well, you can, you know, grab that old spade or whatever and, and just chomp down through those the, the foliage and the roots and scoop out areas that you don't want it. I mean, a lot of people will t- put some type of physical barrier in the ground. Um, you know, I find I don't use uh, uh, 
rubber uh, edging anymore. I use aluminum edging, uh, which is stays firm and doesn't heave out of the ground, especially if you have frost and snow in the winter. But you can use something like that uh, to actually sink down in the ground, at least four inches down into the ground to stop underground roots from, you know, crossing the, the line. Uh, so a lot of people have done that. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if you have other ideas, but that's what I found, using some type of barrier in the soil to stop the roots from crossing or you know, manually doing it with a, a shovel and just saying enough and and just cutting them, you know, segmenting them off where you don't want it to go. Yeah, and and I know with with so, some of them, um, you know, that that I've had in in the past. I mean, the Pakistandra type one. Mm. I mean that that was just running all over. Um, it was it was going over the steps, um, yeah. and it hadn't been trained to stop and it, it was just it was a sea of pakisandra and right. and the supporting blocks were wood and it was it was eroding those because it was um taking them over you know it's, yeah. it's been there for so long but uh, but yes they can be they can be a problem um, and and I, but i guess if you get, get one that likes shade under a tree it doesn't grow where it's sunny would that be a, a reasonable theory <laughs> Oh, sure. I mean, and there's other ones you could do under, you know, the, the tree. I mean, sweet woodruff is great. Gallium, that'll sweep along. And, and there's um, there's actually even some foam flowers that, um, tiarellas, that will sweep. There's one called running tapestry that's stunning with a bicolor leaf and beautiful white flowers for pollinators in the spring. And it'll just, it's not as aggressive as Pachysandra or Vinca, but it certainly will slowly cover ground in a... Um, in a pleasing manner, and I love using that under uh, under trees. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've started to do, you mentioned a slope earlier. I like especially sun or shade, but I'll, let's talk about sun ground covers for a second. I like to use a selection of different ground covers and then make a quilt with them, so to speak. So in one square, let's say it's a three-by-three three square, I will use um, a creeping sedum, one with burgundy leaves like um, dragon's blood. And then in another square, I'll use a yellow creeping sedum like angelina. And then in another square, I'll use a, um, a silver... Um, Oh, a, a silver lamb's ear, uh, especially one of the ones that are smaller, not the common, but the, the more miniature lamb's ear. But you could create, creeping times, you could create squares, quilt segments of really colorful foliage ground covers that also have flowers, but on a slope, now you have something that is very, very drought tolerant because you don't want to be watering a slope, and they have a root system that anchors into the soil and, and helps reduce erosion, and plus we have a very colorful tapestry to look at. So I've been doing more and more with that, that kind of colorful squares of ground covers on banks and other areas where I want to create a, a floral display that also reduces uh, erosion. Oh yes, and uh, you know, and I know that um, your book also covers um, containers. Um, mm. I think containers are, shall we say, high maintenance because you have to keep watering the darn things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you get to the sun, particularly if they're full of sun ones, they need watering sometimes twice a day. So, how do those come into a, a low main- maintenance or uh, right size um, area? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think part of it is your soil medium, and um, I'm doing more where I'll take a, uh, a potting medium. Let's say it's, um, depending regionally where you are, I'm in Maine, so there's a great uh, company called um, 
oh my gosh, a coast of Maine that has a lot of great soil mediums, and I'll turn in some actually organic matter into it, like um, age compost, which will help with water retention more. And so by making that medium more water retentive than just using straight potting soil, and I know some people disagree with that, but this is how I've done it for years, it reduces how much I have to water that container. Obviously, if it's in full sun or a windy area, it is going to need to be watered more, but if I'm trying to reduce watering on a plant that's not naturally drought tolerant, I'll also be careful with the, the container I select. So I'll use glazed containers that help reduce the evaporation, the transpiration water through this side of the container. So I'll use material that is, um, that helps hold that water longer. Whereas terracotta or, um, Oh, what's the other one that is so porous? I mean, it's beautiful, but it's so porous that so much water breathes through, through mm-hmm. the pot. You're watering it more. Um, so, so in general, I'm just I'm trying to also be more selective about the plants I put in. I'm adjusting the potting medium a little by using an organic material to help hold water. And I'm considering the material itself of the container that will also help reduce water evaporation. And, and so, um, you know, by picking the right plant, obviously, um, to put in them, if they, what sort of drought-tolerant ones would work in um, in a container? Because obviously we, I always think of containers as, as being a focal point and ve- very floral and they tend to be overstuffed to start with, um, usually with annuals, um, to make yeah. them look big and, and florally attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna mention annuals, um, some of the ones that I just automatically reach for for just high drought tolerance would be lantana. I mean, you know, lantana are wonderful. They they are just don't need the same amount of water as others. They come in a lot of neat colors. There's a new one coming out this spring that's called marmalade. That's this really fun orangey yellow, just shocking cool really neat color uh, for a lantana. Um, I also use more Bidens, uh, B-I-D-E-N-S. Have you, are you familiar with that one? I don't think I'm familiar with that. My, uh, lantana, <laughs> I am. But. Yeah, well, Bidens is going to be, you're going to see more and more of that. Um, there's one that's been in our garden centers called uh, Goldilocks Rocks. That's a yellow one. But there's some new tropical colored ones coming in that have kind of a burgundy, orange, and yellow, and just have a, they're called Hawaiian Flare series. And these are annuals that are, I tell you, this Biden family just blooms and blooms, zero deadheading, goes through the heat into fall in containers. It's just jaw-dropping how it can go through that kind of a stressful situation, especially if it's in a hanging basket. Um, I mean, I use bacopa. I think any of your bacopa is quite, uh, with the white flowers, is quite drought tolerant. You know, I've, in my right-sizing book, the, the, the Right Size Flower Garden, I stress in every category that we need to be more water conservative. I mean, as we look at what's happening in California and we consider water as the precious resource it is, I am tending to dramatically move away from thirsty plants just from the get-go. So, for instance... I'm not using in patients anymore. I'm swapping it with, um, for a shade annual, I'm I'm (laughs) swapping it with ones like wishbone flower, Tyrinia, which will give me colorful flowers right through the summer into fall with no deadheading, but it's not a water hog in my containers or my garden. So, you know, will I use a few in patients, like some of the sun in patients perhaps? 
I'll use some, but I am not going to use those to the extent I have done in the past. So, so it is a case, really, of choosing the right plant. Um, and I know I was um, in the raspberry bed this past mm-hmm. weekend, which is quite a large bed. Raspberries can get incredibly big and rangy. So I'm assuming that, that if you wanted edibles, those would be compost. Is that right? Anything that take, takes um, is prickle, prickly and sort of comes up from run, runners doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. Would that be right? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm so excited by there's a new series of fruiting shrubs coming out that has just recently been out called Brazzleberries. Have you heard about them? Oh, yes. The blueberry oh. and the They've got a and little the raspberry. raspberry, yes. And those raspberries are thornless in the Brazzleberry series, and they're really high-producing produce fruit on the first year's cane. Um, and all of the Brazzleberry series of the blueberries and the raspberries are all three feet or shorter. So now we have compact fruiting shrubs that we can grow in smaller spaces or in containers on our decks. I mean, it's perfect for the right-sized garden. So now we have plants that we can control. We don't have to deal with the runners the same way. And as I say, especially with blueberries, it's so much easier sometimes to use a container because you can really create those acidic conditions that blueberries thrive on, which might be harder in the landscape to create that type of, um, you know, acidic condition in, in your landscape, depending on your natural soil type. Yeah, and, and I think particularly, um, you know, with, with some of the fruits, I mean, there, there are some, some great ones out there that don't take a lot of space. I mean, have you ever, have you tried any of the columnar apples? Um, no, I, I'm I trying haven't. a I couple of the those. <laughs> Yeah. So they only get like what six feet and like two or three feet wide. How? how what's the uh, I mean, no, these seem to be restrained to about kind of maybe three, four feet high and very little side branching. Uh, oh may, maybe gosh. kind of about two foot. Um, oh my gosh! Yes, of course you still need two of them. But I'm trying a couple right. of those in the garden. Um, those, those should be great fun because they are very small. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to try them. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, because apples need two, you can get some that are grafted. So you right. have two, two apples on one um, columnar um, root. And it's, that, that to me is a perfect option for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, mentioning that, I know I'm jumping a little bit, but one of the plants that we sold so much, I work also at a garden center, independent garden center, are these uh, relatively new holly bushes. You know the hollies need a male, you know, male and female. Yeah. Well, now there are some new series that are out. Um, one's called the Royalty series that have both the male and the female planted together in the same container, so that you only need one plant, not two separate shrubs, in order to get the red berries. You can have red berries on every single holly bush by using a lot of these new series that have, are out, where they just simply, you know, brought the male in, planted that plant in with a female all you need is a little bit of pollen from from the male and you get incredible fruiting shrubs yeah and i I think well typically with hollies you know i mean you need one one male for what uh, is it four or five females within kind of a half a mile and and you're all set i have heard people say 20 to 30 females do fine with one male i mean you know the more the merrier who knows but um as long as you have happy little bees or wind pollinating uh you've got that pollen coming across and hitting the female flowers yeah and and that and that really is why why we grow the holly because of the berries and but you know we need to take another quick commercial break here and we'll be back with more on adjusting our garden to the right size flower garden with kerry ann mendes the master garden hour will be right back.
The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking the right size flower garden with Kerry Ann Mendes. And uh, we've talked a little about some of our favorite plants or some of the issues in the garden, Kerry. So look, I love shrubs. And, mm-hmm. and some shrubs, you know, you, you buy them in that little gallon pot. And the first year, they kind of, they stay nice. The second year, they maybe grow a little, doing the, the typical tree thing, sleep, creep, and then leap. Um, yeah. When they get to the leap bit, they can suddenly take over. So what, what type of things, because your book is all focused on sort of changing different things, what characteristics of um, a shrub uh, would make it in your, well, I must keep that and do right. something with it versus I really don't like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, for me, I'm, I'm a broken record. It must not be a water hog. It must be one that does, need, does not need constant watering. Um, it's got to be a shrub that doesn't need constant pruning either in order to keep it in line. It's, you know, it's got to be a shrub that... Um, like we talked about, uh, or I was talking about with another person, a lot of these uh, hydrangeas that are out now in the uh, paniculata group, the panicle hydrangeas, there's a lot of them now that are five feet or shorter with glorious white flowers and um, that age to a bur- beautiful burgundy pink. And basically you're pruning them once a year, once a year. In late winter, early spring, you kind of tip prune them to make sure they keep the size, but that's the only time. And then you just enjoy these glorious Four months of color from a white, pink, burgundy hydrangea that gives you color from July through the fall. Um, so it's got to be a shrub, as I said, little water, little pruning, and ideally the shrub has to also give me colorful leaves that provide interest for many months. Uh, one of the ones I'm using more and more is a shrub um, commonly called nine bark. Oh, uh, yes. Beautiful. Are, yeah. Aren't they great? So now in the nine bark line of shrubs, you've got all different sizes from some now that are only three to four feet tall Ooh. to those that can go over 12 feet. But the neat thing about this whole group of shrubs is that they have beautiful flowers that pollinators like. They form great berries that the birds like. They're drought tolerant and they have uh, peeling bark for winter interest. And really, one good, strong pruning on those a year should be sufficient to have just a well-mannered shrub that provides 
months and months of interest. In and, and, and those are native to a lot of the East Coast, aren't they? Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Which is so cool, so important, because we're trying to build in more native plants as well. Yeah. Um, but what, what if we want, um, I mean, privacy? In, you mentioned that you were in a condominium, and that to mm-hmm. me, um, privacy in the, those areas is at a premium. Um, is mm-hmm. there some, some way that maybe you can, maybe vines or something, or, or hedges that you um, could put in there to, to give you that privacy? if you're used to more um, secluded areas. Right, right. Well, I mean, it, one thing I talk about in the book with uh, creating privacy and that different types, if you want evergreen or deciduous, is if you don't care about winter privacy and it, that's not an issue, then you, you're not limited to an evergreen. I mean, if you're, your neighbors are gone or you're gone and it doesn't matter, then, uh, then you can use some of these really cool deciduous ones that um, I love. For instance... I use a lot, uh, it's a viburnum called Summer Snowflake, and this viburnum has glorious white lace cap flowers with red fruit, and unlike other viburnums, it will bloom from uh, usually the end of June, mid-June, right through October with these white lace cap flowers, and it's wider spreading than tall, so you get them kind of interlocking those horizontal branches, and they can create a stunning hedge in the garden with great fall color. Uh, another thing you can do, and I, I use it sometimes on decks or whatever, you can create a floral panel, as I say. You could put in panels, lattice panels, either uh, as a border at different points among uh, deciduous shrubs or evergreen shrubs, and then at the base, uh, plant either an annual or perennial climbing vine that can sweep up that lattice and create a beautiful floral display that provides privacy but still allows airflow through by using a, you know, an open screen kind of lattice with a climbing annual or perennial vine on it. So there's a number of ways you can act, you know, provide that, you know, that screen of pull down the shade, so to speak, so that you have some more privacy. And, and would those screens have to be very sturdy? I mean, I know you can get a lot of flexible ones. Um, and how, how would you attach them to the top um, if, if, you're, if you're in a condominium type of environment? Well, you could take, I mean, depending on if you're, if you're trying to do it on a porch, this has worked really great. If you're on a deck and you want to kind of have a movable screen, so depending on the sun, you want to block the sun or your neighbors, depending on where they are. I've seen people do these incredible, like, lattice-built screens that are on rollers on a flat board attached to a board with little wheels on it so they can actually move the 8x8, whatever, 8x4 panel, move it along wherever they need that screen, and then they actually plant annuals in containers, you know, on that deck at the base of the lattice so that you can clean house in the fall, put it away, but now you put, like, fast-climbing annual vines such as black-eyed Susan vine or um, hyacinth bean, and you get these yellow and purple stunning flowers that sweep up your lattice panel. And if you have it on rollers, I mean, you could create, this is not hard, it depends on how, you know, how beautiful you want it to look, but you can create this panel that's on rollers that can be moved along on the deck where you need it, or a couple of them, and now you've got a privacy screen for a deck-type setting I mean, if you're, if you're not interested in moving it, you can just attach lattice to your, depending on what type of railing or deck support you have in order to secure it, especially if you're using annual vines. There's not a lot of weight there, and it's not long-term. It's for a season, and they scramble, and then you cut them away. And So it's not like they have to 
hold a lot of weight for the strength of sturdiness. I mean, for really heavy duty. I, I must admit, I've not not heard of movable lattice screens. I mean, that, that oh. would so serve so many possibilities in that. I, Yes. It, it was so cool. I saw someone else, a designer out of um, Virginia, do this. I'm like, this is brilliant. I'm like, that's what we do as gardeners. We share all these ideas we see. And he said, yeah, we can take it for our clients. You move it here, move it there. The sun's coming there. And you just use containers, you know, on a board that's at the base of your like, lattice screen. And they just scramble up from there. Wow. Yeah. What a great idea. <laughs> and, and, and another shrub I no- noticed in, in your garden that I've tried um, is the reblooming lilac. Mm. which are fairly new on the market. Um, yep. What did you think of those? I love them. I think um, they have, uh, they typically come in that lavender blue. It's in the, they're called the bloomerang lilacs. Bloomerang meaning they keep coming back in another wave of fragrant flowers. You know, I have to say that the, the flower head isn't as big as the traditional common lilacs, but you still get that fragrance. You get the beautiful purpley blue flowers. And there's a new one coming out this year called, um, I think it's called Fragrant Pink, which is a pink repeat blooming lilac. And all the lilacs, these bloomerangs, only get four to five feet. So they're not big lilacs. They're meant for small, smaller scale spaces or using in containers. And they'll bloom two or three times a year, depending on how hot your climate is. So, um, and, but they're full sun, is that right? Full sun, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except maybe in the south where you can get away with a bit of shade. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, see, particularly after, afternoon shade. Uh, well, what other shrubs do, do, you, do you like that, that bloom throughout the summer? Well, I use, this one I use not, it doesn't bloom throughout the summer, but it is uh, it has three seasons of interest, which between the foliage and the uh, the fall color, I use a shrub called um, Fathergilla. The common name is bottle brush shrub. Oh yes, another and, native. And, yeah, exactly. And a lot of us are using that, especially in the Northeast in in the New England area, to replace burning bush, Euonymus, which is invasive. Mm-hmm. But people want that burning bush for that brilliant fall color. Well. Bottle brush shrub gives you brilliant red, yellow, and orange leaves like a sugar maple in the fall, but it doesn't have the seeding habit of euonymus, and it hardly ever needs pruning like the euonymus burning bush, and you get these lovely, fragrant, creamy white flowers in the spring uh, that emerge before the leaves unfurl, so you have a stunning, beautiful spring display. You have a brilliant fall display. And now you can get them in frosty blue-leafed varieties, so you can have those frosty, highly textured blue leaves as a backdrop to your summer garden when it's they're quiet. They haven't changed color yet or there's not a spring flower. But you have a shrub that's just incredibly beautiful, or you can use the green leaf varieties of the bottle wow. brush. Wow. That, that, sound, that sounds a fun, fun. I know I've got a regular one. I'll have to try for the blue-leafed one. Uh, but we haven't mentioned bulbs. I mean, to me, bulbs mm. should be a part of any low-maintenance garden because even the deer don't find them very often particularly the daffodils and can do you use summer and spring blooming bulbs i do i use spring summer and fall blooming bulbs and i look for those that are um in the book i did my top 10 of ones that are long lived so you're not replacing them every three or four years like your tulips um I, i look for ones that are ideally native and or are deer resistant so one of my favorites is camassia um I don't know if you've used that. It's got spiky blue, purple, 
or white flowers, like a delphinium, those tall spikes. And it's quite um, also tolerant of wet soils where many spring-blooming bulbs wouldn't be. And it's a, a spring-blooming bulb that blooms uh, May into June. So that's one I use a lot that's deer-resistant. I also use one called commonly called checkered lily, uh, fritillaria is the Latin name, mm-hmm. and it has nodding either pure white flowers or purple and white checked flowers, blooms in the spring, slowly naturalizes, is just lovely in the spring landscape, and leave, and deer leave it alone. And I, I like the Allium series, because yeah. you can get yeah. some really big ones of those. And yeah. uh, I, I saw, saw in one garden that I went round, because they, they get kind of that, that strawy look at, at, the, at the end. I, yeah. get, I guess when the garden tour came round, that had actually um, gone to the, from blue to the, the starry colour. So she yeah. got, got some spray paint. And yes. sprayed it blue. And yes. hey, it was it great. <laughs> isn't that fun? I'll spray paint my alley, my dried alliums. I sometimes spray paint my dried astilbe, you know, blooms once they're past and it's just brown. I'll take out different spray paint. And I've even gone to, I got this from another designer, spray painting white hydrangeas like the uh, Annabelles and some of those with brute blue so they look like the big mop head hydrangeas but they're highly drought tolerant, the white ones, so I don't have to water them as much, and they're just prolific bloomers. And I'm, I'm using actually a floral spray paint, not your common on the living flowers. I'm using a floral spray paint you can get at craft stores, so it allows light and air through. So you can spray paint leaves, you can spray paint whatever, and it's not going to harm the plant. Oh wow! I didn't realize that it was there was a floral variety yeah. Um, that, yeah. because that that's such a fun way to um, I guess keep thing, things going throughout the the summer and of course the things like the hydrangeas, particularly the oak leaf hydrangea, when it, it mm. matures to that pink, if you if you actually clip it off, it keeps either the white or the pink or the the burgundy or whatever uh, when you dry it, which I always mm. think is kind of a fun thing for dried arrangements. Not that I can arrange anything dried because I <laughs> do not have a talent in that. Direction. I don't um, either. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah, but, but we need to take our final commercial break here, but come back and listen to more about the right sized flower garden with Kerry Ann Mendez. We will be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're 
you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about the right size flower garden with Kerry Ann Mendes. And Kerry, the book it came out, what, um, the spring of this year, right? Just yeah, a month or month so ago. Yeah, in February it came out. Yep. And, and it's a, a, another great little book from um, St. Lynn's Press. Um, and what, what I liked about, about the, the book, it's got a lot of your personality in, in it, um, but lots of pictures as well. Um, just, just of every, almost every flower that you um, are talking about, you have pictures with them, which I think is so, yep. so valuable when people um, are, are, are really browsing books. So it's, it's, a, it's a lovely book, and it's a handy, handy little reference um, book for so many different things um, in, in there. Um, so you, and you, do you do talks um, that are directly related to the book on this, on this kind of right-sizing? Yep, I, it's really popular. I mean, this year alone, I don't know, I, uh, I've got over 100 lectures all over the, the country, mostly Midwest and the Northeast, just, you know, talking about how do we reassess, how do we look at our landscapes and how do we make those choices of adjusting our, our gardens to fit our lifestyle and then what are the best plants to use that also really embrace sustainable practices, you know, pollinators, drought tolerance, all that, native plants. Um, and it, it's been people, I think, you know, the baby boomers and on up, as we were saying, a lot of us are looking for this information. But it's just as appropriate for new gardeners, you know, who want to put in plants that can uh, beautify their landscapes and their homes but not demand so much from them physically as well as input from water and, and uh, you know, uh, fertilizers and all that. Yeah, and I, I think it is important for young landscapers too. You know, as you say, if you're if you're starting out, get the right choices. Uh, I mean, we've we've always said the right plant in the right place, but I think this right. whole landscape idea um, has come come rather differently um, to the market. So I think that's a great idea. Um, and and you say that you do other talks as well. Um, let's let's start with your web page. It's called Perennially Yours. Is that right? Right. It's. Um because I can hardly spell perennially, it's just pyours.com, P-Y-O-U-R-S.com. Um, and in, on that, if you go to it, you'll see there's an events page which lists all my different, where I am and my lectures. You know, I talk about uh, designing gardens, uh, the best perennials, uh, flowering shrubs, how to, how to design shade gardens, which is one of my favorites. So I talk... I think I have over 20 different lectures on, on gardening from some capacity of gardening. And, um, and I present all over, and I, like yourself, uh, PowerPoint so I can both illustrate what I'm talking about and uh, also involve audiences. I love interacting with audiences, and that's the fun of what we do, you know, the, the sharing of information as gardeners. We're very, we're very free to do that. It's not like corporate world where sometimes everyone's guarded to share information. Gardeners love sharing information <laughs> about plants that worked or didn't. That's, and that's what's so fun about what we do. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I think you're right. I mean, we all share, share things. Um, I remember going on a gar- garden tour, and you could tell who the gardener was because there was this senior gentleman in the middle of mm-hmm. a flower bed with a fork, digging <laughs> and a plastic bag. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> he was cl- clearly dividing something to give to somebody. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, and so you've you've got other books as well. Is that is that right? I do. My first book was is called The Ultimate Flower Gardener's Top Ten List, and that's like a reference book of top ten lists for each different plants, the best. 
uh, perennials for dry shade, the best, most colorful flowering shrubs, the best ground covers for drought-tolerant areas. So I go through lists of all these kind of reference pieces, but it also is the only book that goes extensively into how to care for gardens uh, from an organic, sustainable point. So top 10 organic fertilizers, top 10 mulches, top 10 ways to divide plants. I mean, it's extensive what to do when in the gardens. And then the, the third book I wrote is just totally about shade gardening, my favorite type of gardening. Um, the best plants for shade uh, for zones three to seven and how to design a shade garden. And so that book is really just dedicated to uh, seeing your way out of the dark, as I subtitled it, for a beautiful shade garden. And, and you say you go up as low, low as three. Um, I would imagine that would limit the choice in zone three. Well, it does. It does. But, but see, the, the plants that are listed, I will give them the, the plant range. So some will go from zones three to eight. Others will only have a range of, say, zone five to eight. So, okay. But I try to put a number of those that are also zone three tolerant because – you know, there there are those of us who garden in zone three, and but you're right. There's much smaller choice of plants that can tolerate 30 to 40 degrees below zero, which is a zone three plant. There's definitely fewer of those than those in the five to seven, as we say that that lovely range to be able to garden in. Oh, that, that, yes, I think that's the perfect range. Once you get down to the coast, you can't grow lilacs, for instance, and, and yeah. French tarragon. Um, and all three books are available on Amazon and bookstores nationwide, is that that's, right? That's right, as well as my website. I, I sell them from my website and sign and, and ship them from my web from my home as well. Oh, great. Um, and, and if people want to maybe um, contact you to do a talk in their, in their garden club or their area, is there a way of... Um, contacting you from the web page sure yep there's um, there's a whole uh, page on my website that has my whole bio my list where I speak my topics and they can either contact me via email which is on my site or through my phone number which is also listed on the site okay um, and what about social media um, are you on the the fa- Facebooks and Twitters and things like that or uh, either on your name or with the um, under the books name I'm under, actually, it's, uh, I'm Facebook. I'm still haven't gotten into the, the tweeting thing. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I have a very active parental years Facebook page where I post, uh, different cool plants and design and different things usually once or twice a week. So a lot of people follow me on Facebook for, uh, information about cool plants, design tips, what to look for. I also have a monthly newsletter that goes out uh, that people can sign up for on my website, and that goes into more detail with design and maintenance shortcuts and new plant material coming out. And, and is there a charge for the newsletter? No, it's complimentary. Oh, great. Um, that, that, that would be worth, worth getting because, I mean, all, all the design tips and things like that um, would, would be great. Um, and do, do you do a blog as well or is it mainly the Facebook? It's mainly the Facebook. Um, I also, you know, post things um, on my website which acts as a blog, but it's really Facebook. A lot of it is on the Facebook now. Okay. And, and, and if people wanted a signed book, uh, from, do you do talk, talks that are specific where, where you take books along with you so they could see you and get it signed, signed that way as well? Yeah, I, I'm a little camel. I bring my books everywhere with me. So <laughs> we, we, I go along, I pile the books in, and if I'm flying to places, I just have them shipped ahead. Obviously, St. Lynn's uh, will ship my uh, right-size flower garden books. But I always, unless 
like this Saturday, I'm at, I'm thrilled, I can't wait, I'm at the U.S. Botanic Garden speaking, and they don't allow any type of commercial sales on site at the U.S. Botanic Gardens. But most locations, you can sell your books, and I bring them right along in my little cart with me, so I have them. <laughs> but but, but may, maybe if you were at a Botanic Garden and somebody had already got the book, they would be able to bring it with them for you to sign. Oh, gosh, yes, yes. Absolutely. Oh, well, and, you know, we've just got a couple of minutes left here, Kerry. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, in the last couple of minutes, um, what would be maybe the top three things that people should look for out their garden to to make it this low-maintenance, right-size, enjoyable garden? Well, I mean, the number one thing, I'm just going to start with location, which is what I did, is I now what I do is when I'm going to try to figure out where a garden is going to go, or where an existing garden is going to stay, it's got to be one I can easily see from inside the house as well as outside the house, not out in Timbuktu that I have to (laughs) hike out and water or weed or whatever. So that would be the number one thing, to really think about uh, where our gardens are now and to make them most enjoyable would be also seeing them from inside the house. I also talk about I think mulching gardens is so important, not only to conserve water, but also to reduce weeding and to to frame, to have a nice backdrop to your gardens, either using a mulch or one of the great ground covers that's also going to cover the soil surface and um, suppress weeds and reduce water evaporation. Uh, And, you know, I have whole sections in the books. Perennials really have been what I've been known as for a guru of perennials. I have so many sections of all these perennials that don't need deadheading, which takes our time. Either they're self-cleaners, as they say, or they have attractive seed pots that we can enjoy and not feel like we have to do work to preen those perennials. So, you know, smart plant choices, uh, as we talked right in the beginning, right plant, right spot, making sure we're matching the plant to the light it needs, and making sure the gardens are in a spot that we can so enjoy them uh, versus, you know, as I said, inside the house or on our decks and containers. So we get maximum pleasure from these gardens that we're going to be caring for. And I, and I think there also should be seats in a garden. Um, yeah. Yes. Because, because that, that way you can sit and enjoy them. Um, I've, yeah. I've got seat, seats all over the place, um, usually mismatching, but who cares if you're sitting oh, yeah. down? <laughs> Absolutely. I heard a guy one time say that, and along with gardens, professors say, in any landscape, small or large, you should have seven seven spots where they can sit down. It could be even a rock area, a ledge, something that invites rest and, and suggests it as you view it. But I thought it was always interesting, seven. How did he come up with that number seven? But it made me rethink and walk my property again and really look for places to put somewhere where someone could sit and it was it made a difference in my landscape yes and you know i th- i think it does make a a, a difference I, i'm not sure about seven but <laughs> i know i was like seven <laughs> And and, yeah, I th- anyway. I th- and I think that that is part part of this right size flower garden idea mm-hmm. is being able to enjoy it without right. out feeling guilty. Would that be right? That is absolutely right. We need to feel joy and a skip in our steps again versus wringing our hands and feeling guilty about the garden. Yeah. Okay. Okay, folks. Um, well, the book is the right size flower garden. Kerry Ann Mendes. And if we, if you go onto Amazon, you can get all the other books or go to perennially. No, sorry, P yours, um, yeah. dot com. Um, yep. You can find all the books there. Um, it, it's been great, Ke- Kerry, talking to you. Um, Thanks, Kate. Yes, um, and I, I think think the, the book is available now at, at ind- independent bookstores as well as the. Um, 
Amazon, but go to her website. You'll be able to see where Kerry is talking and be able to pick up a book there, get it personally signed. Um, I think that that's probably about all, all we've got for this morning. But thank, thank you, Kerry. It has been thank great, you, great very, fun. Yes. Thank you so much, Kate. You are more than welcome. Um, that's all, all we've got time for this morning, folks. Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We will be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.